Welcome to Cita Ronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is episode 14. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratized knowledge. On this episode, we'll be discussing, we'll be talking about the FCC's decision to repeal net neutrality policies. For Deep Thoughts, we'll be discussing what type of constitution we would now create if we were a part of the Constitutional Convention. And finally, we'll get into the case Riley v. California regarding the legality of using evidence found from a cell phone search during a routine traffic stop. Cool. How are you, Cynthia? I'm doing well. I'm back home in Los Angeles, which is lovely because my parents are here and I have a puppy here, Lani, and it's I'm doing really well. I'm eating three meals a day that are healthy and made with my mother's <laughs> love, so I'm feeling really good. What about you? Yay, that's good. Also, you didn't mention your cat. Sad. It's not. It's actually not my cat. We like rent out the rooms <laughs> in our home to different people, and one of our inquilinos, I don't know how to say that in English, um, is brought a cat with her, and it's super cute. Lenny will play with the cat, Teddy, and like every now and then I'll catch Teddy giving Lenny a bath, like by just like licking him down. It's it's just, I love it. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Um, I'm good. I'm just really happy to be done with finals, and I really enjoyed my weekend, my first weekend post-finals, so I'm doing well. I'm like tired, but tired for good reasons, not work reasons. <laughs> that is good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, and I realized we never checked in about Podcasterio because last episode was the episode with Fatima, the Chiquita episode. Yeah. How was the Podcasterio? Like, I'm so sad I couldn't make it, but how was it? It sounded amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was also cool to check out Molcajete Dominguero, which was the, like, it was a bunch of vendors that were, like, right next to the Podcasterio Fest because it was, like, millennial latinx person's dream just like really cute stuff like jean jackets with like glittery virgins on the back and concha earrings and caps that say like bruja it was really cool and then the actual podcastio event itself was also really fun like it was just nice to meet everybody and participate in an event like that it's just pretty unique yeah, I've been, about the Molcajete uh, Dominguero, I've been trying to get out there. Uh, I just haven't been in LA on the Sundays that it happens, but I'm definitely trying to go out there. I really want to see it. Um, and yeah, yeah, I'm super glad that, like we got, you got to meet the other podcasters and like start forming this, forming this like network and community. I don't know. That's just, that's awesome. You know, people we would have never met before. Now we're like connected through this thing that we do on the side. Yeah, and it's really cool also because I just I also just learned so much for our podcast because the people who came were really experienced and, you know, really have their shit together, like, are just really talented, so it was cool to learn. That's awesome. Um, anything else you want to check in before we get into it? Um, no, just, like, wanted to send a friendly reminder to people that they can still buy bookmarks and stickers because we got a few more orders, but... Uh, we're still taking them and also to support our patreon if you like what we do awesome thank you i'll post all those links and stuff on our website com. so net neutrality 
I, it's been all over the interwebs. And actually, my cousin, I just, I share rooms with my cousin, and I just got home, and she was just like, hey, so what's net neutrality? So I was just like, well, if you listen <laughs> oh, on Monday, we're going to talk about it. So Yvette, <laughs> what is going on? So the chair of the FCC, Ajit Pai, plans to repeal net neutrality provisions and reclassify broadband providers from common carriers to information services. He already did it, right? The vote already happened? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that was phrased as if it hadn't happened yet. Um, But yeah, the vote happened and they did reclassify broadband providers from common carriers to information services. And uh, broadband providers are like your internet providers like AT&T and Comcast. Um, So this means that the FCC won't have the same kind of oversight over those providers that I just mentioned, AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, as they did before, because the way that the law is written now, if you're classified as a common carrier, then you are just subject to much less regulation. Um, Or sorry, if you're... (laughs) If you're classified as an information service, you're subject to much less regulation. The idea of common carriers is that like, if they transport... It was originally uh, a concept that arose in the law regarding transporting goods, but it was applied to the internet also, because which makes sense because the internet, internet providers are like transporters in that they allow us to look at all these different websites. Um, But now that they're information providers, they won't be regulated in that same way. Um, And so what that means is that if a provider like Verizon wants to block content, if they want to charge sites to appear on their service, or if they want to do something like create a fast lane where your service will be much faster, but you'll have to pay more, they can do all of that, which they wouldn't have been able to do before. I Also, enforcement is going to be left to the Federal Trade Commission instead of the Federal Communications Commission. Um, and the federal, it's just a strange thing because the Federal Trade Commission has never regulated the free and open internet. And a lot of people think that they just don't have the capacity to formulate rules that would make sense. Cynthia, do you, do you want to just share like what the basic principle of net neutrality is? Like why it's, why it's so important? Yeah, so I think... The basic principle is that internet service providers like Verizon, like AT&T, should provide the service and just be completely agnostic about the content on it. And I think, you know, we'll get into why why that's so important a little bit later on. But right now, I also want to mention, the so the vote did happen, and it, there's five FCC commissioners that um, get to vote on this. And so there can be no more than three of any one party on there. So right now the composition of the commission is three Republicans and two Democrats. And so the vote was along party lines. So the Republicans all voted to repeal the net neutrality regulations by changing the um, internet service providers from common carriers to information services. And so um, the Dems voted to keep, and I know there was a video going around on social media. I'll try to find it and post it about the vote where the one of the Democratic women um, Democrat women commissioners, she is explaining her vote no. And at the end of the clip, you just see the um, the head commissioner, Ajit Pai. He's like, so I'll write you down for a no, I guess. And like he just like starts laughing in this because she gives like a very like elaborate uh, explanation of why she's voting no, which I thought was completely appropriate. And even that just like reminded of me like it, of all the different things happening at the time, like in that one moment, like not only were they voting to like fuck over all these consumers but the way they were doing it and it was also like 
being like he was like trivializing this like intelligent woman's comments and her analysis just being like okay so I'll got so that's a no right basically and it was just like it was so demoralizing and I was just like wow so they're doing this deregulation and at the same time he's like being sexist and like yeah. putting down women so I just wanted to note that and I'll post the video and like y'all can see it at the end like it's just super like that's what happens a lot to, a lot of times to women especially like it's I think she's a woman of color I'm not sure I don't know much about her so it's just like I don't know that was just like such a reminder of like how all of these issues are always like intersecting and something else I did want to note about the commission is that you know like this the Republican vote on this shows how far along like the right has come because it was under the Bush administration that these ideas like the principles of net neutrality like were first found like Bush did do a lot of deregulation but it was his head commissioner that was like started talking about net neutrality and like had a speech about it and like they started them like they were the ones that put in the regulations that like went on through litigation for many many years and so like then it was in Obama's um, administration but you know like like this wasn't a rep Republican Democratic thing like Democrat thing like this is new and so it just shows the extremism of today so we can't like this is unacceptable even by Republican standards and like they keep just letting their party be taken by Trump <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think another thing that shows how extreme this vote was is how there were major irregularities with the public feedback portion of this. And yeah. This is something that's important. Actually, we got a suggestion from someone to talk about admin law. So maybe we can like devote a full segment to this, but public feedback is a really important component of the doc within the doctrine of administrative law. And we said this before, but administrative law is the doctrine that covers what federal government agencies are expected to do before they can change rules or and also just talks about the extent to which they have power um, as uh, as executive agencies or as independent agencies. And um, public feedback is something that's really important because the well, people who are on... Oh. Well, can I just add <laughs> really quickly, like, because um, I... So the FCC on this didn't need public comment because, like, in admin law, and I'm taking admin law next quarter, so we can definitely talk about it then. Um, in public comment, that's when people comments have to get a response like you have to go through them you have to give a response and you have to think about it before you like put forth your next set of proposal like proposed regulations and in this the FCC doesn't isn't subject to public comment so all they had was public feedback so like it was like a lesser tier of public scrutiny than the normal the normal process so I just wanted to add that because public feedback and public comment like that that's not what was happening here and the reason why public, I mean, public feedback should always be a principle that we care about, but yeah. it's especially important with the executive agencies because these commissioners oftentimes are appointed and so they're not as accountable to the voting public as, say, like your senator or your um, representative in the House are. And so it's uh, really scary also because that they didn't get public comment on this when this actually does impact like virtually every person. Yeah, but okay, so even though they had public feedback, even that was like warped, right? Like, so the irregularities that you mentioned, 2 million comments were filed to the FCC on net neutrality, and they were submitted under stolen identities. Like, who's doing this? Like, what is that? What is, you know, like, that's like, 
what's going on who's taking the time to like steal two million identities and like put like put in fake comments because those fake comments were all in favor of like repealing net neutrality well not i won't say all of them but i'm pretty sure when i was reading through articles that's what they were like there were these comments by someone who was just like okay this was this comment is made under the name of my mother who passed away three years ago and she was a liberal and these comments are all like for taking away net neutrality so that's like how the comments tended to come and then half a million of them came from russian addresses and then like 50,000 of the complaints have gone inexplicit inexplicably missing so i don't know this is just shady like we're getting closer and closer to 1984 orwellian dystopia every day yeah and i think another really scary part of this is that i think what's really at the heart of this is corporate greed um there was an at&t executive that was uh, quoted saying why should google and yahoo be able to use my pipes for free we created this infrastructure um so they basically feel like they're not being paid for they're not being paid adequately for what they provide um, and the pie, who's <laughs> the, the pie, the current FCC commissioner is, uh, he's a former Verizon lawyer. And also I wanted to point out that this has been a trend in Trump's appointments. He has appointed people who don't believe in the validity of what that governmental agency or commission is tasked with doing. Like with the person who's the head of the EPA and the pie being the head of the FCC, it's like almost laughable. This person who obviously is aligned with Verizon is now in charge of whether or not Verizon is going, how much freedom Verizon is going to have in charging people for more for their services. Yeah. Okay. So I, was, this is all ridiculous. So I laughed at your earlier point about them not feeling like they're getting enough money or compensation for their work. So I just did like a quick Google search. And so Verizon's profit for 2016, and I'm talking about pure profit. I'm not talking to, like this is already taking out their expenditures, right? Like this is just pure profit. Their profit for 2016 was $74.5 million. Like $74.5 million in one year. And 2015, it was $79 million. Like, seven, like that's, that's ridiculous. Like, I can't even fathom that. Like, I don't know how many people they have to share that profit with or whatnot. But, like, I doubt it's that many that this is all of a sudden, like, just pocket change, you know? So it's just, like, the idea that they would think, oh, we're not getting paid enough. And it's not just Verizon. Like, AT&T's profit in 2016 was $86.9 million. It's like, we're over here <laughs> working, trying to get the minimum wage to go up, and they're over here complaining about not having enough profit? Like, are you kidding me? This is absurd. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things I find most scary about this stage of late capitalism that we're at. It's like, how much people, how much money people really want to accumulate. Like, at, at a certain point where it's like, you are just accumulating money to have it. Like, can you really even do... What, I don't know. People are accumulating so much money that I feel like they don't even have the time to spend it all in their lives. Which no, I guess is the point. They're building don't. intergenerational wealth. Uh, it's ridiculous. Um, okay, but sorry. we I digress. I just wanted to prove that point because I, people need to, I want people to get over this idea of like, oh, they're just working for their profit to like you know, capitalize on all their entrepreneurship. Like, no, that's a lie. That's all bullshit. Like, this is ridiculous amounts of money. Um, so, Yvette, 
I think we've already kind of gotten into this, but why is this bad? Like, what what do we expect? What else is going to be happening? So this will be bad because it will stifle innovation. It's going to be harder for startups to get going because of the fees that they may need to pay uh, to be able to broadcast their stuff on things like AT&T. Um, and would, that's also going to stifle the marketplace of ideas because non-mainstream news and media sites won't be able to compete with these bigger, more established news and media sites. And also, it's just clearly going against the public will. 77% of people supported the old regulations, including 73% of Republicans. Um, and like like I was saying earlier, that Pi is an appointed head of an independent agency, and so he really doesn't need to hold... Uh, he doesn't. He has independence from responding to the public in in a way that's different from our elected officials, and he and then you know even though that's already true, he still didn't bother holding any public hearings before making this decision. So I think the message is really clear that what the American public wants isn't going to matter for Pi. Yeah. So do you want to talk about what changes we're going to see in the use of our internet if if this remains in place? Yeah, um, so we'll probably see different packages and pricing. I, again, I saw good social media um, pictures of this, depictions of this going around. So you'll see different packages and pricing schemes that were, will steer um, people towards some content over others. So if you have AT&T, like, they're going to want you to use the services that they own versus like Verizon that owns something else. And so analysts will like believe that we will pay more for the services that we are currently using because there will be additional bundles to pay on top of just like web surfing or whatever like the minimum internet package becomes like Instagram um like social media is going to be one bundle video streaming is going to be another bundle like music streaming is going to be another bundle and so we're going to pay more for exactly the same thing that we're getting now if not we're going to pay more for less services because of the way they're going to bundle and the way they're going to um, make the fast track, which means you're going to get like fast speeds on one thing, but not fast speeds on another. So, so you're going to be paying more for less basically. And, but like, as Yvette said, like if that's all of these things remain in place, because what's happening next is that there's some organizers who are trying to get Congress to reverse the FCC's decision unclear whether we can get this congress to do anything that's considered useful so i don't i don't personally hold out much hope for that other organizers are trying to sue the fcc to restore the regulations and so we've seen um several folks are already suing and then there's also other actions going on by the state attorney generals like new york california and some others they're also suing to get this reversed but it's it's unclear whether those lawsuits will win because at the end of the day like this is going to take a long time, and by the time this gets to the Supreme Court, I, you know, Trump may have had another nominee already, which will really change the composition of the court um, into even worse than it currently is. So that's all things to keep in mind. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to note of why we need to be particularly vigilant and concerned about this is that the FCC also rejected some of its own authority over the broadband industry, and that's because they don't want you know, like, if the FCC changes in the future, right, like, there's now three Democrats and two Republicans, and they want to change this, like, make the internet service providers from information services back to a common carrier, this FCC has made it hard for them to do so. 
because they don't want their actions to be reversed by a non-Republican-led FCC. And this is such a common tactic that is terrible because in the ideas of our democracy, we're supposed to be able to elect who's uh, representing us and then have them put in policies that reflect our values. But when there's this like dead hand control, you that, that, that doesn't work. People from yesterday are still controlling what we do today. So this is really toxic for our democracy. Like, and I say democracy under like quotation marks, but we've seen this before. And like this happened in Michigan with affirmative action where voters like made a different pathway for affirmative action than everything else. So this isn't new, but this is something to watch out for. For sure. Should we end there? Yes, let's end there. Okay, so for deep thoughts, I wanted to talk about something that maybe feels a little bit weird or random, and that is what would we do or what would we want if the Constitutional Convention were happening tomorrow and we were elected delegates? Why do you think, why did you want to do that? Okay, so I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot because I think it's important to like keep our goals and our values in mind in, in days like these where it feels like we're on the defensive so much. Because I think we still we still deserve to use our imagination to like seek ways to fulfill our values and live them. Because, you know, we're living right now through things that we didn't think were possible. Like we're seeing things every day that we didn't think were possible that we never imagined would happen. And, you know, and it's all coming from like the right side of the spectrum. Right. And it's they don't they're not the only ones that deserve to use their imagination who deserve to like make things that seemed impossible possible we get to do that too and so I want us to not get out of the practice of using our imagination of thinking like what is the world we want to live in and still working towards that instead of just constantly trying to defend our basic human rights and so I really want us to not forget how to do this how to like craft the world we want to live in yeah what about you Yvette what do you think I agree. I think it's important for people to use their imagination. I also think that dreaming of alternative futures is a type of resistance that's really important. Um, but I thought it, this would be a cool exercise because I think we're really going to see what different results there would have been if people like us had been at the table who think about inclusivity in a different way than the founders did because the founders really just wanted to create equality amongst white propertied cis men. And I think it's going to be cool to think about what equality and equity might look like if we take into account the people that we care about. Perfect. I, I completely agree with you. So just to start off, do you kind of want to just like list what you're, the top things you're thinking of, and then we'll get into a couple of them and I'll do the same. Yeah. So I really believe in direct democracy of there actually being one person, one vote. And so I would want to ensure that there would be robust protection for voting rights and that this would be a right that can't be taken away from anybody in the way that, you know, and as opposite from what can currently be done, where if you uh, are convicted of a felony, then you are disenfranchised across many states. But I also think it's not, it's just like we have to do more than just let everyone vote. We also have to incentivize people to vote. So I think that on the day of voting, everyone would get a day off of work and it would be a paid day off of work. And I also think that if you make below a certain 
income threshold, you should be paid to vote. Um, I think that this could present certain problems in terms of people attempting to buy votes, but I actually think that it could work. I think that people, I respect and believe in people's agency, and I think that I think that the I think that this most recent election might make us go in the opposite direction of where we need to go. Where, like I th even in our law school, I th I've seen like a reinvigoration of the idea that elites need to run everything, and that actually, if you let people vote, then you get disastrous results like Trump. Because honestly, what they're saying is that people don't have common sense, and that um, only the elites should be able to run things. And I actually think that that's not true because actually a large portion of Trump's voters uh, are wealthy people. And I also think that uh, basically I trust that people can make decisions over their lives that make sense. And so I also wanted to rework the college electoral system so that there's actually proportional representation. Like I said, one person, one vote. Um, and also decentralized decision making. So the federal government would essentially just be like a central treasury that would disperse budget amounts to all states and local entities and everyone gets the same amount but then local entities decide how to spend that money and I think there should be a universal basic income Puerto Rico would be given independence and there would be um, a no intervention policy in Latin America like an opposite of the Monroe Doctrine or whatever that was what about you Cynthia well first I have to say I love your list it's very extensive um <laughs> I, I think I disagree on some details of that, but we can get into it um, later. Cool. So mine would be, I, I sum it up in two. One is to adopt the international human rights, and we can get into a little bit more of what that would mean. And then my number two is to add a provision that once like the U.S. got to a certain population or geographic size, it would divide. So if it like went into effect today with the current geographics and populations of today, the U.S. would be broken up into several countries, about six or seven, and it would look more like the European Union model of like having this like union where folks like can do trade agreements and share a currency and whatnot, but each country, like it would be different countries, not just states anymore. So those are my two big ideas. <laughs> Why did you want to adopt the international human rights framework? So the international human rights framework is much more inclusive than what we currently have. And it's been approved by the United Nations General Assembly. So it's not like a wild thing to want at all. Like this really is a basic thing I'm asking for that it's wild hasn't already happened. And working in like, not that I have extensive um experience working in international human rights but from what the circles I've been in people have kind of given up on the U.S. ever adopting like the international human rights or the other international conventions and treaties that we've signed which is wild to me like why is that something we've given up on and I see this as super important because as we like in our classes Eva I've really learned how much like the Supreme Court has like struggled finding rights based on our constitution because they're they're not that um they're not that extensive and even though there's like this provision being like this is not the full list of rights that can be recognized the court really struggles to recognize other rights so there's like this really weird analysis that happens around rights where justices look to see if a right like the right to contra contraception which is like birth control wh like whether that's in the constitution and when they do, like, they did find a right to contraception, but it's based on the right to privacy, which to me was wild. Like, I just had no idea. 
Yeah, I think what I find confusing about all of that analysis is that the the Bill of Rights contains something that says that uh, the Bill of Rights shouldn't be read as saying that these are the only rights that are going to be mm-hmm. protected. Um, so I actually don't understand where the issue comes from, um, especially because times have changed so much. Like, the right to abortion wouldn't be talked about in the same way then as it would now, so why would it matter what intentions were back then? But that's the current situation. Yeah, and so, so the rights... What, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I was just going to ask what, what rights would be included in the human rights framework that aren't included now. So there's several highlights, and um, it's all online. I'll post a link. But so the ones that particularly attract me is that so in their like kind of preface of discrimination, they they talk about like you can't treat people differently. So without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. And I really like that list. I feel like it's fairly comprehensive, and I really like that they include color in it because it's just kind of acknowledging that colorism exists. So even within, like, race analysis, there's there should be a colorism analysis. And then there's also worker protections. So they, the international human rights include equal pay for equal work, the right to form and join trade unions, which is, like, a right that's super threatened in the U.S. all the time, and periodic holidays with pay, which I thought, yes, that sounds necessary. And then there's protections against poverty as well. So there's a right to a standard of living adequate for health and well-being, which we don't have any like rights like that here in the U.S. And then there's also a right to education, which is constantly threatened in the U.S. And so those are, those are the, my highlights. Do you want to get into why you want to revamp the voting system in more specific? Yeah, so... As we saw from the most recent election, voter turnout is really terrible in the U.S. There were 63 million people who voted for Trump, but there's 250 million adults that are living in the U.S. So part of the reason why the election turned out the way that it was was voter turnout. But then also it was the Electoral College and how that system is set up and the differing weights given to differing states. Uh, make it so that one person, one vote actually is false because um, your vote actually can have more weight depending on what state you live in. Um, and it, this was demonstrated by the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but she lost the Electoral College. So I just mentioned that 63 million people voted for Trump, but 65.8 million people voted for Hillary. Uh, and this system actually has disastrous effects on our country that we've seen before. Like, uh, I don't know if people remember the early 2000s, the Bush v. Gore election, but there's a lot of analysts that say that if such a large percentage of the black population hadn't been disenfranchised in Florida because of the um, felony disenfranchisement voting laws that I was just talking about earlier, then many say that Gore would have won because of how close that race was and particularly because of how key Florida was. And so when I was talking about like making it so that uh, voting day is a paid day off of work, I'm just recognizing that the reality is that it's logistically difficult for people to vote. Like when I've um, I've participated in a few like get out the vote uh, campaigns and like have worked for a few elected officials campaigns and one of the things that's repeated over and over is that w- the way to really get people to turn out to the polls is to help them make a plan that of how they're going to vote that day of you ask them like oh, okay so when are you going to schedule this how are you going to get there where's your voting precinct and it seems silly and simple but these are really the things that get in the way of people voting or not 
And so I just wanted to not only make it easy, but also incentivize people to vote. Yeah, I really like that. And I completely agree with you. I I was going to talk about this at another time, but since you're talking about voting, I'll talk about it now. Um, one of my New Year resolutions, I think this year is going to be register five people to vote. And when I register, I register people to vote every now and then. And when I do it, I always make them a permanent permanent vote by mail. Because I know some people are like, oh, but I really like to go to the polls. And it's like, that's fine. I'm still going to put you down for permanent vote by mail so that you get all the little local elections sent to your home. And if you still want to go to the poll, you can just take your ballot with you and drop it off and vote there. But I, I agree with you. Like, it's it's because of the way it's set up. There's so many obstacles to voting. And so I, I com- I'm with you on completely revamping the voting process. And you also talked about decentralizing decision making earlier. What did you mean by that? And like, why? Um, so I basically think that the more local control exists, the better. And it, so I think it also this idea ties back to incentivizing voting for me, because I think a large reason why people get discouraged from voting is that they don't see the immediate impacts of their choices, or they feel very far removed, like they feel like they can't actually impact the decisions that are made in DC. And so they're just like, well, why bother? Um, And I know that another reason why people are really discouraged from voting is that um, politicians have terrible track records. I understand that. That's like a much harder issue of holding our elected leaders accountable. But I think a way to get there is by encouraging more local control. Um, And I also think it's harder to fuck people over when they're your neighbors who can't hold you accountable. Um, I oftentimes do think that elites in D.C., Uh, don't feel any kind of moral qualms with what they're doing because they don't see the people that they're affecting every day. Yeah, I agree with you. So your idea, I think this is related. I think we're trying to tackle the same issue, but we're just coming up with different solutions for it. So why did you want to break up the U.S. into different countries similar to the U.N.? Yeah, I I mean, I just, I really relate to what you're saying about um, just decision makers being completely removed from the people. And so what my train of thought is the U.S. is too large to be appropriately governed. Like it doesn't to me, it's obvious that something that works for Utah or Montana, like a policy, whether it's environmental or health or work or whatever, that policy is probably not going to work for Maine or Florida or California. And it's just because we're such a big country. Like we I just think it's too large to like legitimately be governed and so I also agree though that we need to move the government closer to the people that it's governing so like if you're in California if you want to go lobby your congressperson in DC which is where I feel like they spent at least half their time or if you want to like lobby a committee versus just your congressman like you have to pay for a flight from California to DC like that's you know that's really hard to do whereas like I know in, in California even though people are in Los Angeles They'll organize different bus trips up to Sacramento so that they can march on Sacramento and stuff. So I want to see, like, I want that to be more possible. And so, and I also think, like, because of the way the U.S. is set up, we're not getting actual options in terms of who represents us. Like, we're limited to a two-party system, right? Republican or Democrat. But, you know, if if we had California its own country, right? And maybe, like, we would tack on Washington, Oregon. I'm not, like, I'm not sure (laughs) the exact geographic borders. But, you know, I can imagine that our our representatives wouldn't just be, like, Democrat or Republican. It'd be, okay, well, this person's progressive. This person's a socialist. This person is just a liberal. This person is, is this. And you'd actually get a variety, and you'd actually be able to vote 
for more than just like down the party line and get people who more like more closely represent what you actually believe because it's hard to vote on any issue the way that we that our elections are set up now and then I you know people I, I feel like people when I've talked to people about this they really like brush it off as in like no but the potential to harm a lot of people is like is there if you did something like that I'm like well a lot of people are being harmed now and if we did this this would actually bring a tangible benefit to so many people so for example like I am confident that if California was its own country, we would provide a, a path to citizenship to our undocumented immigrants, like, fairly soon, you know, like, things like that, we would provide health care, we would maybe, like, pay for education for everybody, and so it's, like, this idea of, oh, but it might harm a lot of people, it's, like, well, people are being harmed now, like, where are you placing the value on harm, because I think that the harm that goes on on the day-to-day -to -day today is too much, and so I want to act to resolve it. I'm not sure if this is a part of your plan, but your comment about whether or not Washington or Oregon would have been included in like the country that California would be, but your mention of borders reminded me, and I don't know how I forgot this, <laughs> this would be like number one on my thing if I were to go to a constitutional convention, but I would say that um, there wouldn't be borders, and borders wouldn't exist, and um, people would have a legitimate right to travel. I, I agree with you, and... <sighs> I guess I'm a little more pessimistic of, about achieving that, but I mean, I'm like, I would support you. I would vote with you if I was there with you. Um, but I definitely feel like that's something we would need to bring up. Well, maybe we start with the U.S., right? And then we move on to the U.N. and um, and go about it that way. But I mean, I agree with you. It's 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 ul the ultimate goal. So do you want to talk more about how breaking up the countries would work? Yeah, just quickly. So the way I envision it, there'd be like seven countries and just from talking with people, like, they have a lot of concerns about the military and being able to be this, like, world power, which I'm not sure I agree with. But again, like, I I don't agree with it, but I, I see the concerns as well. So I'd be okay with, like, the former U.S. sharing a military, right? So no one country would have to, like, support its own military. I think, like, that would just make administrative sense. And then there'd be free travel between the countries and the right to live and work wherever you wanted within like the former U.S., so similar to the EU model. Uh, and then a concern people have told me about is like, oh, what would happen in the South? And my answer has generally been like, well, nothing that hasn't already happened. And I know it wouldn't be the easiest thing. I do think people would migrate out of the South if things got bad um, or worse than they are now. And, and not that I would want to see that happen, obviously, but, you know, like we can't, keep so many people suffering now just by this like potential threat of what places like the south would do and i think that if people would are really concerned about what happens in the south then they should move there especially all these like white liberals that are moving to san francisco that are moving to los angeles that are moving to new york it's like no go back to indiana go back to alabama go back to louisiana mississippi and like fix your state don't just leave and so that's generally my answer but I've talked about it enough about that what about universal basic income because I love that idea so that's actually something that people do debate in a serious way just because of how our economy is changing it's, it's becoming really clear that job growth for the working middle class but particularly the working class isn't happening you know the quality factory jobs where you are a part of a union are just gone and working class folks need to work two, three jobs, usually service jobs, to meet their basic needs. And there just aren't many opportunities for income growth in a lot of these jobs. 
And I think that people still deserve a basic standard of living despite this. Like, I think it's so wrong that people need to work three jobs and they have the bare minimum, you know, like they're barely making enough money to have food on their table. Um, and this is tied to what you mentioned earlier that you liked about the human rights framework that it creates a baseline standard of living for everybody. Um, and so I think that if we are going to accomplish that, then there needs to be a universal basic income. So like everyone is going to have a certain like a minimum income level regardless of what your job is or if you're like employed um just because I think that like it's so cruel that for us if you can't produce in the system then you deserve to not have a home you know I think that I can't believe that we treat other humans that way and so I think if we had this universal basic income then everyone would be able to have like the bare minimum which is important yeah, I completely agree with you. I'll post some links to what's going on in Stockton, California, because they're doing a pilot program. And I'll post some other links on uh, on Cerebronas.com in case people want to look read into this more. I just had to do some research on this, so I'm, like, uh, well-versed right now. And, no, I completely agree with you. And this is the kind of programs where I feel like if in this world where we're, we've adopted into international human rights, the Supreme Court would be like, yes, we need a universal basic income because... And it's a fundamental right to have this, like, adequate standard of living. So I, yeah, like, this this is just, like, one of the many policies that I hope would come into play. I'm feeling super invigorated, Yvette, and super, like, yes, this is what I'm working for, and this is giving me energy, and this is why I, like, need to keep trying, and these are my goals. Like, I don't know. I'm just, I don't, I'm feeling really good. Yeah, I think it's important to state your goals so that you don't give up on them. Okay. Should we move on to Riley? Yes, let's end this one here. Okay, Riley versus California. Um, Yvette, do you want to get into the facts of this case? Yeah, so Riley was someone who was allegedly involved in a gang shooting. And the reason that the police were able to find that out is that the cops stopped him on a routine traffic stop. He was driving with expired license registration tags. And then they found out from that that his license was suspended. And so then his car was impounded. And when that happens, the police are allowed to do what is called an inventory search. Um, and the purpose of the inventory search is just to, is like related to officer safety. They don't want like contraband to be in, in the cars that they have on their on their facility. And in Riley's car, they found guns in his cell phone. And so then they went through his cell phone and found pictures and videos that were used to prove that Riley ha was affiliated with this gang. And then Riley moved to suppress the cell phone evidence um, as being obtained unlawfully. But that was denied. Yeah, I can't believe that it was like, <laughs> they have like gang unit detectives analyze the video and photographs and like be like, oh yes, these these signs and these pictures, if you look at this in it, that means this. Like, that seems ridiculous to me, but that's what happened here. They they saw pictures of Riley making gang signs and other, in like, in, indicia of gangs and that were stored on his phone, and that's what they used to, like, uh, give him enhancements because in California, you get gang enhancements, which just adds hella time to your sentence, so it's really important. So the fact, like, this... This really mattered, like not just for connecting him to this like other crime, 
But for the sentence, this just means you're in a whole different uh, sentencing scheme, which really, like, it, it, this is big. This is a big deal, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I gang enhancement is an issue for all communities of color, and I've come into contact with it from the immigration side because that's the type of law that I've had my internships in. But uh, what ends up happening is that just like you said, like these gang unit detectives decide that because a person is dressed a certain way, because they're hanging out on a certain neighborhood street, um, because of who their friends are, like those those are things that can put you on a, a, a like suspected gang list that can lead to the gang enhancements that you just mentioned. And I've actually seen, you know, it's just, it's terrible because the things that are analyzed are things that are largely out of a person's control. Like, you hang out on that neighborhood street because that's where you live. <laughs> you know, you like hang out with those friends because those are the people in your neighborhood. Um, it's a really powerful tool that's very often misused. Yeah. And I've seen cases where it was someone who had like Aztec drawings. I don't know like what exactly, but it was very clearly like just Aztec drawings. And they use that to tack on gang enhancements to like say, oh, you're part of a gang because you have these Aztec drawings. Yeah, I mean, the, and the, that story isn't weird. Like, that's, like, a pretty common story because yeah. it's, like, a lot of times these police forces don't have a good understanding of what affiliation in the gang means, so they're just kind of guessing. And a lot of times it's, like, racist assumptions about what a drawing like that implicates. Yeah, so, Yvette, what was the issue in this case? Uh, so the issue was whether or not the evidence that was admitted at trial from his cell phone violated his Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches. And what what, what was the holding? They held that, yes, uh, the evidence admitted did violate his Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches. Um, so, because usually if you are conducting uh, a search on someone, you would need a warrant. Um, but there's certain exceptions to that default rule. And then... Um, the one that exists here that the officers used here is one that was made for the purposes of protecting officer safety and preserving evidence. And neither of those things were at issue in searching his digital data on his phone. Um, like what could be in the phone that would, you know, harm, potentially harm a police officer or nothing. Um, it can't, yeah, it can't be used as a weapon to harm an officer and um, police officers have the ability to preserve evidence while they wait for a warrant. Um, by disconnecting the phone from a network and placing the phone in a Faraday bag, which I learned about in CrimPro. I guess it's a thing you can do to make to like disconnect the phone from service. Um, yeah, it like so, blocks like signals from getting to it. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> um, and so the reasons for the warrant exception, warrantless search exception, didn't exist here. Yeah, and I just want to note that all of this doctrine of unreasonable searches and seizures, that all comes from the Fourth Amendment. So we have a right against unreasonable searches and seizures. So that's, there's, this is, this is that part of that doctrine. Do you want to go into the reasoning of why cell phones are different from other types of evidence that the police might have found? Yeah, so the court was really convinced that the cell phones are, you know, sort of mini computers that have massive amounts of private information, which really just makes them different from things like a wallet or, you know, if you happen to have a diary on you, which is literally what the Supreme Court talks about. Because when you have, they talk about how 
a person usually cannot carry the amount of information on them that their cell phone has. So like mine, like without your cell phone, you like if someone had your wallet, they might find a couple pictures of someone you care about. They might find like, you know, business cards or whatever you have in your wallet, but they wouldn't have access to like all the emails you've ever written since you got that phone. They wouldn't have access to who you're calling, when you're calling them. They wouldn't have access to your text messages, your all the apps that you use. And they were just really convinced by the amount of private information. So like if you look at the apps that I use, if you look at the emails I write, if you look at the text messages I send and who I send them to, you'd have a like a pretty good idea of my life and who I am. And so that, that is what really convinced the justices of, you know, a cell phone is different. This isn't like what the, like the framers didn't have this in mind when they were thinking about unreasonable searches and seizures. We didn't have this in mind when we said, you know, anything within like the person on the person's body or within like their pro close proximity. That's, you know, we weren't thinking about cell phones then. And so this is just something that's different. Cool. Um, and so... Do you want to talk about the privacy doctrine? Yeah. So there's this, like, the pri the doctrine of privacy is, like, fairly robust, and it's been developed through several cases. But one thing that really bothers them on, bothers me about them, and it's, it's here as well, um, is that it doesn't rely on what the arrest is for. And, like, there's even been cases where the Supreme Court, like, says, like, minor, minor arrest, like, it doesn't matter. Um, and so, like... In, like here in Riley, you're not when they're not discussing like the levels of privacy related to the crime, and so it's more connected to like what is being searched. So like a cell phone versus a wallet, or a car versus a home. But that and like it's that's fine if the if, if the court erred on the side of like you have more privacy than not. But the court doesn't err on that side. It gives police officers a lot of leeway, a lot of exceptions like the inventory search and keep in mind that most warrants like when police officers or whoever goes and asks for a warrant I don't remember the exact number but it's like in the 90s of how often they're approved so it's not hard for a police officer to get a warrant so we're talking about like these like other times when the police officer just like won't get one and the court doesn't it doesn't care like oh it doesn't care if you were just being pulled over for expired tags it doesn't care if you're being pulled over because you're like see you weren't wearing your seatbelt so I don't know that's just something that really bothers me about this doctrine and the this doctrine is evolving um the Supreme Court is actually rehearing this issue or like an issue that's very very similar um which relates to this overall question of how hard it should be for a cop to be able to access all of the information on your phone um, or should a gov the government have to be able to look, should the government be able to look through our phones without first going to a judge? Um, the question before the Supreme Court now is a slightly different one that has evolved as cell phone technology has evolved. So the question now is, should a cop need probable cause to gain access to cell site location information? And that's generated every time a cell phone connects to a cell tower. And that's pretty terrifying because it would essentially mean that your every move is being tracked by your phone because 
uh, the police could utilize that as evidence since your phone tracks that all the time. Yeah, I've literally, I, I saw this, uh, like the cell phone records for one of my first, some work I had to do. And so I was looking through my client's cell phone records and literally like your cell phone is pinging a tower like every five seconds. And so right. like, it was like these pages and pages and like it comes with coordinates. So I was able to just like plug them in and kind of trace like where my, like, like where someone went from minute to minute. And it's like, well, I'm getting that for my client for his benefit but, like, if the government just has access to this and, like, you're not always notified. I mean, you're usually, I want to say, if this is, like, an, a long-term investigation, you're not going to be notified. And so it seems it's just, like, this is important. The, like, I'm scared of which way the Supreme Court is going to rule. But, like, this is literally just basically having a tracker on us. Like, whether, like, it's okay for the government to know where we go all the time. Yeah. And so what's behind all of this decision making is another court doctrine that we haven't talked about yet. Or actually, did we talk about the third? I forget if we did, but um, it's this idea that's called the third party doctrine. And it was originally conceived of a long time ago in a case about allowing police access to call records. And the, uh, the court ruled that you had relinquished your right to privacy in regards to call records because you had willingly given that information to a third party the third party being the phone company and so since you had already relinquished your right to privacy then you no longer had claim to it in this context of a police search and i think that's kind of an antiquated idea because we under under that framework anything that we do could be up for grabs in terms of the web like our emails, um, our, our calls, every, like you were saying, everything we do on our phones can be something that be accessed without probable cause. Um, and it's just a huge invasion of privacy that we should all care about. Yeah. Yeah. We should, uh, talk about like at another time, more of the privacy cases, because I do find that like we completely need to redo our doctrine around privacy because the way it's tethered to expectations and the way expectations change is just really problematic. So I'm glad we brought it up here and we'll definitely like let folks know once the Supreme Court ruling comes down on this next case. And we just wanted folks to be aware of that this was happening now. Cool. Should we move on to recommendations? Yes. Let's, let's wrap up Riley with that. Okay, Yvette, what are you recommending this week? I started watching She's Gotta Have It on Netflix, which is a remake of Spike Lee's movie from the 80s. And I actually really appreciate it because I haven't seen the original movie, but I heard that um, Spike Lee did a really, really gross and terrible and triggering traumatizing rape scene in the original movie that he's actually apologized now for because it was like my understanding was that it was grotesque like for no reason you know it's kind of like there's like a fine line between showing violence and then like glorifying it or like promoting it um and this films this uh, new tv show is like so the opposite i feel like it's really empowering as a young woman of color because the main character is polyamorous and it's cool because it's like finally a 
positive portrayal of polyamory. Like I feel like in other shows, like with Insecure, for example, it's always portrayed as like being shady but she does it in an ethical way so she lets everybody know that she's seeing other people everybody's on the same page and um you can see why she's in these different relationships and the different things that they give her um and she the actress is just phenomenal um yeah so that's my recommendation oh my god i'm gonna go watch it thank god for yeah it's really good (laughs) yeah you would like it it's really good Um, okay yeah what about you cynthia I'm going to recommend, well, my, I feel like my recommendation is so, like, it's just the side dish to your main one, because that was so good. I'm, like, so hooked right now. I'm, like, Googling it as we speak. Um, <laughs> okay, but my recommendation is this website. Uh, I want folks to enjoy the internet while they can. And so there's this website called 8tracks, and, like, number 8tracks.com. And I really love it. It's just, a, a like, a site where people create playlists, and they tag them by different things. And so it's a website I've used a lot since college, and it really helps me get through points where I'm, like, studying and just need study playlists or mood, like, times when I'm, like, just, uh, this is probably not healthy, but um, times when I'm sad and I want to listen to music that will make me feel sad, I'll just type in <laughs> sad. Um, and yeah, so you can, like, t- <laughs> right? <laughs> so you can type in, like, working out. You can type in cooking. You can type in an artist or a song or whatever and it'll give you def- like different playlists created by real people and so I found I found really cool music that way and I just really like it it's it's a cool website I, I really enjoy it so I'll post a link to it and I hope people find amusing playlists on it awesome well Yvette uh cheers to number 14 I will Yay. talk to you later it's been a joy yeah talk to you later enjoy your break you too bye everyone Hey, yo, my dogs go heat, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, they don't get cold feet.